This episode is brought to you by freedadcourse.com. You are always one conversation away from changing your life, and the power of hello is something that I subscribe to every single day, and I'm always saying hello to new people everywhere I go. Increasing your opportunity, increasing your connection, and getting access to the solutions to the problems that you are facing, whether you're on active duty or just beginning your veteran transition or even transitioning out for 20 years. On the other side of hello are the solutions that you're looking for. Again, head on over to freedadcourse.com. Get your five-episode audio course to create more connection, create more friendships, and get back to living the life that you're trying to design. Your next step is the foundation of your future. And by extension of that, where you're standing right now is the accumulation of all your previous steps. Dory 1, this is Fireteam Delta. Dad's coming home. Welcome to the Military Veteran Dad Podcast, where it is our mission to bring every dad home. I am your host, Ben Colloy. I'm a United States Marine veteran, husband, and a father. We will bring authentic conversations to inspire action in your life so we can close the gap between the dad you are today and the dad you want to be tomorrow. This is the Military Veteran Dad Podcast. Welcome back to Military Veteran Dad, episode 108. Guys, today, this episode with Joel Stewart hits in a way that we've had on the podcast, but we do it in a very different way, and I can't tell you how excited I am for today's podcast. So Joel Stewart is a very awesome guy because he's a United States Navy veteran. He's founder of the International Franchise Market, so we talk a little bit about franchising, which is something we've had a previous guest in the podcast about. He's a now author of The Value Equation. He's just an amazing individual, and also his story of what he had to go through. He had something that happened to him health-wise, and I'll save it for the episode for it to be unpacked, but there is a story where he pretty much got put in a wheelchair, and he had his whole life pulled out from under him, and he had to kind of rebuild from that, and he had to learn a lot of hard lessons the hard way, but those lessons now have made him a stronger individual, a stronger dad. And everything about his life is now aligned in a way that he's loving where he's headed. And as always, guys, if you want to hear my big takeaway of this episode, hang on to the other side of the episode and I'll be back on the microphone. But other than that, let's get started with today's episode of Joel Stewart. Welcome to the podcast, Joel. Well, thank you. Reading a little bit of backstory on you, you've got an incredible story of going through a lot of shit that life has thrown at you. So I want you to open up right away. Tell us a bit about your family. Tell us a little bit, a few of those maybe struggles that we're going to hear about today. And just tell us who Joel Stewart is. Uh, well, Joel Stewart is a very interesting guy. Let me tell you about him. Now, uh, yeah, sometimes I think it's that, uh, this, our struggles that really kind of define us and mold us. Um, you know, we look around and we see the people that don't seem to go through the struggles. Uh, they're really kind of shallow and weak people. I actually had a theory about this, and uh, I, I didn't even mean to, to go this direction, especially in the beginning. But I, I put out this theory a while ago called the logic of life experiences. And that, and that is that um, everything that we go through and how hard it is for us to go through it, it always ties back to um, our hardest life experience that we'd gone through so far. And, uh, and that's the measure of it. So if you've gone through something really difficult, everything in the future, difficulty is measured against that thing you've gone through and everything is gonna be easier in general. 
Um, and you see a lot of people that may not have gone through a lot of difficult things. And it seems like everything is horrible. Everything is drama. Everything is like the hardest thing because they don't have any. So for them, like their, their measure of what is difficult is a very low bar. Uh, and so by extension, almost everything is difficult. Uh, and it's, it's, it's actually, it's kind of funny because the, their reality is that it's difficult. And then for people that have gone through things that are objectively much more difficult, they look at it and they're like, wow, that's, that's crazy. I can't believe that you find that difficult. Uh, so for me in, in my life, I've gone through, you know, a fair number of pretty difficult things. And I, I guess we can start there. Uh, when I was in the Navy, um, things, I started getting like these really uh, just kind of random symptoms. I started getting fatigue. Uh, and to just wind it back to the beginning, like I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm getting ready for the next PRT. And in one week, I realized I can't finish the workout that I'd just done the week before. You know how normally you work out the next week, you do a little bit more and the next week you do a little bit more and, and you're progressively building up to this like peak level of physical performance. And I just, I just, I couldn't do it. And, uh, and then the next week I could do even less. And the week after that, I could do even less. And I, I couldn't figure out what was happening. Um, and it just, over a period of six months, uh, it just continued to devolve to the point where, uh, where fatigues had set into such a level, I couldn't even drive anymore. My wife had to drive me around because my arms would fatigue on the steering wheel. And, uh, and then even beyond that, I had to get like a motorized wheelchair because I couldn't walk around anymore. Uh, so that kind of set in for what was probably the hardest period of my life. Um, it, uh, the darkest period was in Bethesda where they were putting me through all kinds of the Naval hospital there. Um, they were putting me through all kinds of tests and everything. Uh, but nobody could actually figure out what was wrong, but eventually it did hit a limit where it stopped and things got a teeny bit love better. Uh, but during that darkest point, um, you know, I, I was getting pushed around the hospital in a wheelchair with my wife. Uh, I couldn't drive. I, at sometimes I couldn't even chew because my jaw would fatigue so bad. They gave me uh, diagnoses of chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, uh, basically all this stuff where it's like, we don't know what's wrong with you. And so you kind of loosely fit in these categories. Um, and uh, one of the other ones was POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, where uh, when I would stand up, my heart rate would go up to 160 on standing uh, within a minute just from standing up. Uh, so a bunch of really crazy random stuff. And, uh, and that got to the point where I couldn't sleep. You know, every time I moved, there'd just be this cascade of joint pain through my body. And, and that's when, you know, when people talk about suicidal ideations, I actually understand what that means now. It's like, you don't want thoughts of suicide to come. They just do. And, uh, and you just keep trying to push them out of your head and they just keep coming at you unbidden. Cause I, I went through that for about three months. Um, you know, and it's just, it's, it was really painful to just watch my life unravel over a period of, uh, you know, six months to a year. I was married. My, my daughter was a, a was a year old. My wife was pregnant with our second one. Uh, when I was in Bethesda, our daughter was a year and a half. So she was there with us, um, yeah, it was, it was tough. And then, uh, and then when things, they never figured I was wrong with me, but things did, did get a little bit better, uh, to the point where I could basically lay around in a chair and not do anything. Um, and the Navy eventually separated me 
uh, medically retired me because uh, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't go into work. Um, and my life just went into this holding pattern for like five years. <laughs> where it never really got any better, never really got any worse. It was just there. And uh, it was so hard to just like watch people's lives go by. Um, my wife teases me all the time because uh, at some point in this, uh, you know, the movie Wally came out. And uh, and here's a, the story of this little robot that just like watches life go by and can't do anything. And I just like started crying at this cartoon about a robot of this this guy who's uh who's just watching everyone's life go by while he goes around and does his thing um but yeah so then so then when i started uh i started going to a chiropractor on a regular basis which um kind of kicked off this next level of my life i should say if i were to break things down into levels because once i started going to this chiropractor three times a week i got to the point where i could sit up in a chair for an hour which after not being able to sit up and like, I, I was basically recliner, you know, my bed or my recliner was it for years. Um, and, uh, and I could sit up for an hour and that's when I said, you know, if I can sit up for an hour, I have to try to do something. And I went back to school for my MBA and, uh, and that was a whole nother struggle by itself because I could sit up for an hour, but I couldn't sit up for three hours, which is what a class was. And, uh, and there were times where, you know, I had to get up in the middle of class and just lay down in the back of the room or, or go out into the hallway and lay down in the hallway. I mean, luckily there were night classes. So, you know, there weren't a lot of people there. Uh, but, you know, it's what I had to do. And I did it um, like and driving. I could drive, uh, but I had to like recline almost all the way back. So I'm, I'm sitting like in the <laughs> I could almost stick my arm out the back window of the car. I was reclining so far back, but uh, driving back and forth to these classes. That's when I kind of realize the difference between a disability mindset and one that is uh, more of an entrepreneurial mindset is that uh, the epiphany hit me is that, is that it's not about what you can't do. It's about what you can do. And I wish I'd had that, that epiphany years ago. Um, you know, there were five years there where there were an enormous number of things that I couldn't do. And because I was so focused on that, I missed out on all the stuff that I could have been, there's stuff I, I could have been doing. And, uh, and I just, I was so focused on all the stuff that I'd lost and I wasn't focused on all the potential that was I had a similar me. feeling when I sat in Okinawa for three years playing Xbox, no kids, roof over my head, three squares a day, no responsibilities other than to show up to work. And I didn't do a damn thing. <laughs> and now I got three kids trying to do, all these things. And I'm like, I would just like, crave ah, for that season of my life back on the moon. I wasted all that time. Yeah. It's, uh, it's kind of crazy. So, so that's, so that's when, uh, and then finally things did resolve themselves. So, I mean, we're, we're talking, you know, probably six years after I got medically retired and, uh, and I, I figured out what was happening and I got out of that and I started, in earnest, trying to restart my career, restart my life. What did they figure out? Oh, it's, it's kind of the most, it's the most bizarre thing. Uh, like a good episode of house. The best description. Yeah. The best description that I can come up with is actually from a, a documentary called what's with wheat. 
and they called it non-celiac gluten sensitivity. There was a lady at the end of the video that described almost everything I went through exactly for her. Um, but it was basically uh, some kind of, I, it's hard because it's one of those things where uh, the mainstream medical community doesn't embrace it, but the homeopathic community does, but everything the homeopathic community described played out exactly me. Yeah. Um, so an, another way to call it is uh, leaky gut syndrome, but a lot of mainstream medical community will say that that doesn't exist. Um, but the description of it, as they say, and I'm not saying that this is one, true one way or the other, is that you're, you're basically your gut lining gets comp compromised. Food proteins start leaking into your bloodstream and your body recognizes bacterial infections by protein signatures. And so your body starts to grab onto these food proteins and starts to think that they're an infection and your body starts going into this life or death fight with these proteins that are actually your food. Um, that's, that's the best description that seemed to make sense to me. Uh, and so basically the, the most common, it could be any food protein, you know, people that, that claim they struggle with leaky gut syndrome will tell you it could be anything for me. I did a complete isolation diet where I cut out everything, but, uh, red meat and green vegetables. And when I started adding stuff back, it was uh, potatoes, peanuts, and and gluten. Basically, whenever I would eat those foods, my body would just go into this like crazy reaction. And then the full body inflammation, the the heart symptoms. I mean, the, basically, the, the food was like messing with my whole central nervous system. Uh, there was actually a period where I went through, uh, I can actually, I can actually kind of sympathize with women going through menopause. There was a period where I went through uh, hot flashes. Uh, my, my temperature would just go between 97 and 99 throughout the course of the day. And I'd be like freezing. And then I'd just be like covered in sweat. Um, just all these random central nervous system issues. And uh, as far as I can tell, it was tied to a severe reaction to food. And it's just kills yeah, I just changed my diet. I started, I, I did an elimination diet and within two, with, within, within a week, but really within two weeks, but within a week, I noticed a huge difference. And within two weeks, it was like, I was a whole new person and I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't, um, after everything that I went through. <laughs> so now every time that someone says they have fibromyalgia, they have chronic fatigue syndrome, they have POTS. I'm like, Hey, have you checked your diet? And they're like, Oh, you're crazy. I'm like, no, seriously. And the only thing you really did to heal yourself was just pay attention to what went inside your body. So for me, I mean, anybody listening to this, like if you or someone you know is dealing with fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, POTS, uh, especially POTS, uh, really look at the diet aspect of it. It's it's crazy. Um, That's the crazy part. Even, even if you don't like what you're talking about there with the very specific one, many doctors are not trained on nutrition. A psychiatrist will issue a prescription for depression before ever asking what you're eating because they just, that's how they're trained to, to solve a problem with a pill. And that's how their mind works. It's how, I mean, we have a great medical system in here that can save your life if you're in a car accident. But when it comes down to like truly the science of your body, there's a lot of lack of knowledge on the doctor part. I love, I've loved doctors, but from the way the Western medicine society has approached it, anytime someone has a back problem or something, where they just feel broken or they've been labeled broken, like you'll never do this again. I always tell them, go find out a community of people just like you, and you'll find there are so many people out there redefining their life with advice that goes against Western medicine. 
So there's a popular question I like asking when people have gone through kind of a pit of what you went through. What do you think you learned from that, that this was the best vehicle that say, if you look at from a God perspective, like what did you really deeply learn through this five-year process? And maybe it was that wisdom as well, but like, what did you learn that you couldn't learn before? And that maybe this was the best vehicle for you to really learn it that you've now taken back control of. And you're like, man, I'm really glad that I had that slap in the face, even though it sucked. And now you're like, I can't imagine living without it. Oh, gosh. Oh, there's a couple of things. I mean, one is that um, it broke my male ego, if that makes any sense. Um, a lot a lot of sense. people, especially guys, and, and being a guy, I'm coming from that perspective. The male ego is so incredibly fragile. And the closer it gets to breaking, the more violent or outbursts we tend to have. And then once it's broken, our self-worth gets stripped away because the male ego, we, we put, we build up this caricature of who we are and we put so much self-worth into that caricature. And when we fall short of this imaginary person that we think that we are, it is incredibly hard on us. And so uh, when this thing happened, I mean, my male ego of, of the person that I thought that I was, was just gone. And it was just me that was left. <laughs> um, and honestly, I don't miss it. Um, now that I'm just kind of more of a raw person, uh, once, once that male ego is gone and, you know, you talked about from a God perspective, I mean, once, once you realize that all the things that you were putting your value in were gone and, you know, it's God's, it's basically, you have to rely on, you know, God's view of you instead of your view of yourself. Um, it, you become a, a much more grounded person, much less volatile and much less competitive. Less able to be pushed over. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, I, I am who I am now. I'm not, uh, you know, striving to, to be. Get butt hurt less easy. Yeah. I'm not striving to. Have you ever read Man's Search for Meeting by Dr. Victor Frank- Frankel? No. You would love it because that book talks about Dr. Victor Frankel was a Holocaust survivor and he talks about finding a reason to live in the middle of misery that he's stripped away from his family. He's surrounded by death. He's surrounded at a concentration camp with evil. And he talks about the mindset they had to develop and how that mindset got him through being in that camp and surviving because he was able to win the war in his mind. And his heart and able to thrive, not thrive, because you're not going to thrive in a concentration camp, but he was able to keep <laughs> the will to live alive in very dire circumstances. It was, I read that book at the beginning of quarantine and that book, man, did it strip away so much crap. And like every page has a piece of wisdom that you need to highlight and remember forever because it's just a deep, dark book that has a light of truth in it that in the darkest of dark, there is still a ability to find light. And that's what he did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's exactly what it is. And then, uh, so th- then the other thing is, uh, the, the ability to have more compassion on people that are also suffering with these things. I mean, um, like, again, you said from a biblical perspective, I mean, uh, and in, in the Bible, it talks about how after you go through things, you can try to help out and comfort other people that are going through it. Um, I went through something that most people can't really relate to, and they can't really understand. And 
you know, one of the hardest things I had to go through was that on the outside, I looked normal. If you just looked at me laying in my recliner chair, you wouldn't know that there was anything you just wrong lazy. With me. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, there's that lazy guy laying in his chair all day. Um, yeah. So it was, you know, I, my heart breaks for people that are in that situation because they're, I, I, I know that how much they're struggling. And, uh, and, you know, a lot of military guys deal with it too. It's the same thing with, with like PTSD and stuff. Uh, you, you can look at it and you can look totally fine on the outside, but on the inside, like you're just hurting <laughs> and people just, it's, they don't understand that. Um, and then what, there was this book that I read by Morgan Schneider that really helped me tap into this wisdom from God and it was becoming a king. And he put it beautifully when he was on the podcast talking about it, that it takes a lot of shit to make good soil and rich soil creates a strong life. And so you like, you're almost fortunate that you had a big pile of shit dumped early on because now the f- soil is that much more fertile for everything else to go. Sometimes people don't have, they don't get tested till they're 50. And that soil doesn't have the nutrients to really thrive. And sometimes I almost wish I had more adversity when I was younger because I would have a richer soil to tap into now versus what I wouldn't have if I would have had that happen. Yeah, that's exactly right. The, uh, and that, that's where it says again, in the, you know, looking at the Bible is talks about all things work together for good to those that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And with that, uh, what that really talks to is hope and it's hope that no matter what it is that you're going through, that, that a purpose can be drawn from it, that meaning can be drawn from it, that it's not useless. It's not pointless. And so for me going through this, I, I, you know, I lost five years of my life, five years of uh, professional development, um, five years where I wasn't able to keep up with friendships and, uh, and, you know, I just kind of, you know, didn't go anywhere. And then out of that came, you know, a hunger to, to get back out there. And I f- followed a new life progression I never would have followed. Um, if I hadn't gotten sick, I definitely wouldn't have moved back to Connecticut. Um, I wouldn't have, uh, you know, reconnected with my family with the way that I have. Uh, I wouldn't have gotten into commercial real estate and business brokerage, which eventually, which I didn't really like either of those things, but both of those things led to franchise consulting, which I do now, which I love. So you know, all of, all of those things. I mean, I I went through it and it totally redirected my life. And I fully believe that there was a purpose behind all of it. And by the same extension, once you realize that, once you grab onto that symbol of hope, um, you can realize that even when you're going through tough stuff, that there's a purpose behind it, uh, that there's hope behind it. And the beautiful thing about hope is that if you have hope, you can get through anything. It's, it's when hope is gone. I mean, that's why politicians try to le- uh, leverage hope. Um, that's why marketers try to leverage hope. You buy our product um, and we're going to, you know, solve whatever problem it is that's plaguing your life. Or you have this problem plaguing your life. You might not even know it, but you do. And we're going to solve it for you. Uh, you know, it, hope is so powerful. And if you can control somebody's hope, you can control them. Uh, but if your hope is in something that no one can take away, you've got uh, something in your life that is solid, that's real, that uh, that you can always cling to. And it's... Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned hope because a huge part of my story is realizing that I was outsourcing my hope. And so if my life sucked, it was everybody else's problem that I outsourced it to. Like I gave you a job. You're supposed to help me feel hopeful. 
Like my job progression and my career progression is your problem, not mine. And when I don't get what I want, I can blame you. And I remember listening to a Zig Ziglar episode. I was on the way to work. I was in front of the Ace Hardware, maybe five minutes from there. That's how impactful this was like maybe six years ago. I can still remember it was in the morning. It was sun was shining. And there's Tom Ziglar was on there and he mentioned a John Maxwell quote that I often use in my coaching now is, if there's hope in the future, there's power in the present. And at that time when I felt that and really heard that quote, it unlocked that when the outsourcing breaks and someone doesn't do their job, I blue screen like a computer and I just shut down. I feel like I just like the whole world just crashes when my hope goes away. But when I have hope, man, I can do anything. But I wasn't actually in charge of creating my own hope. So it was always everybody else's fault that my life sucked versus my own. And it was a radical accountability to bring that hope back in and generate it on my own. Because once you create a perpetual engine of hope on your own, like there's no stopping you because it doesn't matter what people say, you already believe that you are enough and you believe that you are hopeful enough to get and achieve the dreams you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, honestly, that's what breaks my heart with modern. I don't want to get into politics, but both sides of the aisle, everyone, I, I, when I see people no, they, they outsourcing much, their hope, too much trust in, yeah. uh, I mean, I've heard it said you have a better chance of in, affecting your life by focusing on your school board elections than you do for president or Congress, but no one ever gives your school board elections, which actually could affect the education your kids receive. They'll focus on the big ones when the big ones have really no impact to able to achieve your life. I mean, even in COVID until everybody got a check from the government, it's probably the most impactful the government was able to touch every single life in the United States. Other than that, you're living your own life and very little what they do in Washington yeah. is going to affect you. But people outsource their hope. And and then when the, the other person gets elected, either way, like your social media, life, everything my, gets my flooded with these going hopelessness. to be guaranteed to suck. Yeah. Yes. I'm just like, oh, gosh, stop giving these people your hope. Stop it. <laughs> stop. And, and it's, it's, um, it's part of the idea that you you aren't responsible for your own life, which I think is also a theme for even veterans. I think this is something we struggle from because when we are serving, we're not really responsible for our own life. We're really responsible for showing up and doing what we're told and being where we're supposed to be. But when you transition out, there is so much internal accountability that you need to bring back. Like there's no Reveille at 530 to wake you up. There's no taps to remind you to appreciate the flag there. None of that exists and you have to find it on your own. And it's like recreating that code within yourself to recognize that while I served, I served a higher purpose and accountability that was above myself. When you transition out, it's about bringing that internal accountability to myself because no one else is going to care about my life as much as I do. So I got to ask a question. When you were, you, you answered that big question of, it's not what I can't do right now. It's what I can do. That's a Big question. And a lot of veterans get stuck in, I have no idea what I like doing. And they have no idea where their life goes. I mean, I can't tell, tell you how many people I talk to that have no vision for next week. They have no vision barely sometimes for tomorrow because they're just running on autopilot, the basic American dream of go to job, get to work, do everything you're supposed to, but not really worry about tomorrow when really what you care about what have you learned in that process that you could help unpack for other veterans to answer that question? What can I do tomorrow? Because it's a big question and a good one, but a lot of veterans get stuck on having the right answer. Well, I, I actually wrote a whole book about this. 
Um, perfect. A perfect tee up to the book. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just I wrote a book called The Value Equation, and I I basically take a look at all the factors that feed into uh, that take home check. I call it realized value because you have so much potential uh, that you've built up over your lifetime. Uh, but how much of that potential are you actually realizing? How much of it is showing up in that monthly or weekly take home check? Uh, and I, you know, I, it's one of those things where unless you have that epiphany that says, you know, oh, this I can actually apply to my life you know, everything is just kind of amorphous. It's just kind of like, yeah, 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 more random advice. So I built the book around trying to create those epiphany moments in people and saying, oh, here is an actionable step that I can take. And then I also, it's, I'm, I'm actually going to be putting it out hopefully over this weekend. Uh, I actually built a workbook to help people go through with this. Um, but basically I, I break it down into uh, five main five main parts of your life that you need to focus on. The first is your skills. And that is something that uh, a lot of veterans have an, an actual enormous number of skills. Uh, and they may not realize it uh, because they may think, you know, I, I have the, the stuff I did in the military doesn't apply to the civilian life. Uh, but the skills that you learn in the military when it comes to, you know, leadership is pushed at every level. Uh, leadership development, you know, personal development is, is, is actually pushed pretty hard for soft skills. And soft skills can be applied almost anywhere. Um, so the first thing you need to look at is skill development and what can you do so that you're developing skills continuously. And one of the ways that I describe this is I say that um, your next step is the foundation of your future. And by extension of that, where you're standing right now is the accumulation of all your previous steps. So your life is sitting on a foundation that you have built over years of taking one step after another, after another, after another, developing skills and uh, relationships and networking and all of that is accumulated in where you're sitting right now. And that it could be a great foundation or it could be a terrible one because uh, not everyone makes the, the best decisions. But uh, the point is, is that where you are right now is what it is, but the next step you take is not set in stone. The next step you take, you have control over. And once you take that step, that is the new life foundation for you. And uh, once you're on that new foundation, you're going to be taking another step and that's going to be a new foundation. And so once you start to look at your life as a series of foundational steps and not just random walking around doing whatever, once you look at it as the next thing that I do, my whole life is going to be, the, is going to be founded on that next action, that next step, that next development, um, you can start to build up. Uh, something and you can start that anywhere at any point in life. It's, it's just about planning and it's about you know recognizing what that next step's got to be. So I talk about all the different ways that you can develop skills. I talk about uh, everything from educational stuff to um, to what you do for hobbies and extracurricular activities and programs and platforms, all of that stuff. Uh, and that kind of sets the master value that you have in the marketplace. And then I talk about fit factor. So. Uh, you know, if a CEO gets a job as a cashier, that that's not a good fit for their skills, right? They're, they're not going to get paid their maximum amount. So there's a bunch of stuff that, that uh, factors that go into whether or not, uh, what you're doing fits with your skill set. And I talk about how to try to maximize that. And then I talk about profit share. So this boils down to being an employee versus a business owner, uh, versus getting into a partnership or a franchise business, which, you know, it's, 
Uh, my specialty is franchising. Uh, so yeah, I actually don't, I don't adopt that much time in the book to franchising. Uh, but there's, there's different ways that you get compensated for your time and how you structure your employment relationships, how you structure your pay, uh, as an employee and whether or not you decide to do a side business. So I, I have all kinds of ideas for side businesses or, or when you should start a business, uh, versus employment, all that's in profit share. So, you know, if you, if you bring, you know, $200,000 of market value to the table, how much of that 200,000 do you get to keep? Is it a hundred thousand? Is it 50,000? Is it 30,000? Um, so that, that's where that plays in. And then there's perceived value, which is, uh, the different ways that people see you and how that correlates to money. So in, th in this section, I talk about networking. I talk about community involvement. Um, I talk about being proactive in the workplace, uh, Lots of different stuff to cut the cover and perceive value. One of the one of the big things I focus on is understanding bias and understanding where it comes from. Everyone has bias. You know, it, there's a lot, been a, lot, a fair amount of attention recently uh, because of the recent state of politics on confirmation bias, and that is how likely you are to believe something's true just because you already sort of agree with it on some level. So that's where fake news comes out and people automatically believe fake news is real news because it matches their confirmation bias. But confirmation bias or just, you know, bias in general, we all have it towards everything. Uh, you know, it could be uh, you're that parent, right? And you've got one kid that can't do anything right and the other one that does everything right. Well, the parent that has that bias that the kid that does everything right does everything right. That kid would have to like destroy the world before that parent would realize, hey, my bias is wrong. And if they have the bias towards the other one that thinks they do everything wrong, it's, it's the exact opposite. They would have to, you know, change the world in order for that parent to think that that, that kid, and, that, and this correlates to the workplace. If your boss thinks that you're a piece of trash, it's never going to do anything right. Getting that boss to change their perspective is going to be an enormous feat. And, uh, and you know, I, I actually recommend in the book, it's better to go get another job and just impress the crap out of the new boss. Because if you can have them come at you with the think with them thinking that you are an incredible employee, they're going to give you the benefit of the doubt in the future. Uh, so I, I focus a lot on understanding what bias is and how you can take steps to uh, make sure that that you are being seen in the best possible light. Because you want people to give you that benefit of the doubt. Uh, you want people to think that you know when you mess up that that's not who you are. That's just an accident or something. Because that makes a huge difference in, in how valuable you're perceived in the workplace. And then I talk about courage. So none of, nothing matters if you don't have the courage to do it. And I kind of break down my perspective on courage, how fear is important, um, and how courage is something that can be broken down into distinct steps uh, that are manageable instead of trying to like look at something as this big thing. Because I've done a lot of that. I, I've done international conferences for franchising. You know, that, I still remember that first franchise conference I did over in Oman and uh, and just the way that I had to break that down because the idea of, of not just trying to set up a, a franchise conference in another country, <laughs> but come up with content, you know, what, what happens if I do something that's really stupid or, or what if people have questions that I don't know? Uh, I had to, to just break it down step by step into manageable chunks that I had the courage to overcome and just take it one step at a time that's my book in the nutshell. In a nutshell. I mean, I, I go, I have concrete examples. Uh, I have case studies I follow. Everything is designed so that people have that epiphany moment that says, oh yeah, this is something that I can do. And it's just, 
like as it like when we started on talking about this, it's it's not about what you can't do, it's about what you can. And so just along those lines, the book is designed to get people to say, here's something I can do. Uh, here's a direction that I can take my life. And then the workbook that I'm, I'm gonna be putting out shortly uh, takes that kind of to a whole nother level of trying to really break down your life and uh, focus on, on what are the three things that I can do right now to, to be moving forward. Sorry, that was kind of a long explanation. I hope I didn't bore everybody too much. <laughs> no, it was perfect. And I think you nailed so many heads for different topics out there and went into areas that we don't often go into. So it was kind of like a, a Picasso of all those different things. And the biggest issue that many veterans have when they do end up taking their own life is they could come to the conclusion they aren't a person of value and they're more of a burden to society than they are a person of value. So if you think of that mindset and then a book that's clearly designed to lay out how you are a person of value and how you can rewire your brain. There's a good Zig Ziglar quote that really I found back in like 2014 that kind of drove my whole self-growth journey. It was, I am who I am because of what has gone in my mind. I can change where I am and who I am by changing what goes in my mind. And that book sounds like a classic example that you can completely rewire how your lens of life looks and it's no longer beer goggles. It's clear maybe not crystal because that takes a lot of freaking work to get to that even crystal i don't know if anybody ever gets there but just being able to see the world in a different light than you currently do today and just said it beautifully i want to go to a different topic that we do talk quite a bit on the podcast but i'm interested to see your take because to me as a dad and as military dad we have a leg up i feel like because we understand and see the world with a different set of eyes that the other 83 or 93% of the population in the United States does not. And that is how to raise our kids to understand their value. So like I have two daughters and I, I shortcut my basic fundamental rule is that if they can become 18 and not get their value as a woman from Instagram and the number of followers and likes they get on a post, I've succeeded. Um, there's probably a lot of other things below that, but like that's my bare minimum that if they can derive their value from the inside, and not the outside, because Instagram to me is like a trap for so many people growing up, especially at that younger age, they see their worth determined by other people. And that's like the hope. I mean, you, you nailed it right there with hope that the likes that you get on a post determines how hopeful you feel that day. And if you post and maybe you worked an hour on this post or whatever you did, and then you only got two likes, you're like, oh man, I must be a piece of crap. So I'm interested. How do you help your kids tap into their value equation? Because to me, our biggest objective as a dad is to help them do that. And you can't figure it out with 12 years of school. And it's my objective and mission to give my kids the widest view of the American dream so that they can get outside their life to figure out how they fit into it and really how they can help take their gifts and start changing the world. I mean, I, all I can give is my perspective on this one. Our kids are similar ages. Um, my oldest is a, is a girl. It's all theory at this point. Yeah, it's all theory. Um, <laughs> you know, cause my, yeah, my, my oldest is 10 and, uh, you know, I, just on a side note, the being a, a military parent, uh, one of the things that I think I do enjoy uh, the benefit of is being able to be like good dad, bad dad. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, I'm a loving father, but then when you screw up, it's just like, that's it, kid. <laughs> yeah, you're on your last you can life. Go both ways. Yeah, right. Um, but uh, yeah, so for me, what I've tried to do is focusing on their positives, you know, when they do something negative, you know, we, we have to focus and say, look, this is unacceptable behavior. Uh, but we have to 
put equal, and this is hard sometimes, especially when they're all over the place, <laughs> uh, but we have to put equal emphasis on encouraging their po the positive things that they do and encouraging positive values as we do on discouraging negative ones. Because if we're just, if we're, if they're doing negative stuff and we're just all the time in their face about how all the stuff they're doing is negative, <laughs> they're going to feel like that's who they are. And they're going to try to find that worth and that value from um, other people that are going to reinforce it. Uh, so, you know, with my kids, my oldest one is, is really great at art. And, you know, I, I try so hard to, you know, encourage her in that and enable her in that and, uh, um, and, and reinforce the good things that are happening and, and other ways that she can derive value, not just, you know, from the outside, but from the stuff that she's doing and the work she's doing. And my son is, is, you know, pretty good at math. Uh, he's kind of following my own footsteps. My background's in engineering. Uh, he's a little closer to me than I'd, I'd probably like, but uh, yeah, he's, uh, you know, and I, and honestly, sometimes I feel like he, um, he might even get a little less praise because you know, my daughter is always making these incredible artsy things. And everybody's like, Oh, that looks so great. And, you know, it, and he didn't knock out advanced math and everyone's just like, Oh, just math. Yeah. So it's actually the stuff that he does is much less vision. He gets a lot less visual uh, encouragement, I think. Uh, but you know, it's, it's trying, it's hard. It's hard to balance uh, encouragement and guidance with discipline uh do you organize any field trips to help like for your daughter to understand what the art world looks like and the way that people generate a good living within the art world like my daughter's into art as well so i've thought about um even doing like the art museum which she's never been to um i'd probably hate it but i would like it because i'm with her I think everything I know about the art world makes me want to stay, wants me to keep her as far as possible. But I think it's a classic <laughs> example. Like what you're talking about is it, it's your confirmation bias. <laughs> you're already determining it based yeah, on how yep. you see the art world. And I'm sure the art, if there's any art people listening to this podcast, they would disagree. And it's one of those where to me, we just don't know it exists. Like franchising, another example, most people probably think of franchise and the only thing they can think of is the fast food and maybe a few others, but there's a, such a, a deep, deep world that there are so many franchises that you could start to change your life, but everybody just assumes like, yeah, there's no way I'm going to open a Jimmy John's because that's not me. And you're like, well, there's a lot more out there than Jimmy John's. I think it's the same thing with arts. And so it sounds like maybe you both need to explore the space. So that way you both are comfortable helping her enjoy her curiosity. One of the things that we can focus on is, you know, art is a product and selling products is right down, you know, the, the wheelhouse of an entrepreneur. Um, so we're actually right now, there's, there's like a local organic store and they might actually start selling some of her stuff, some of her little clay creatures uh, for a couple bucks a piece. So she, she. That's a huge one right there because most kids don't understand how to generate money or where truly how it can come out of the thin air and that the only method is a W-2 job, which isn't true either. That's just another confirmation bias. And like you're teaching her something like I can take a skill, I can provide value and I can create money out of nothing with something that just came from me. Like to me, I wish I would have learned that a long time ago. I grew up on a farm, so I I don't know why I didn't truly understand it, but my dad never slowed down to like, say, this is what I'm doing and this is how it works. Um, and so I had to figure out on my own the hard way, but like, I think you're opening up something there and within entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship is something there's 
a huge teaching tool within entrepreneurship of accepting control and responsibility and creating. And I think that is something, again, with being 10 years old, I mean, that seed, I mean, that could grow into a mighty oak later on. Like you have no idea what kind of those seeds are going to go to. Yeah. I, uh, entrepreneurship is something that I'm very, pretty passionate about. Um, but it's, it's not the only, the only way to go, you know, looking at my book and I don't focus my book on entrepreneurship. I focus it on employment, entrepreneurship. Uh, there's something I, I, I have in my book called strategic employment, which is going for jobs for the skills you're going to learn on the job, not necessarily for the pay. Um, and I, when I talk about market share in the profit share section, you know, I, I say, you know, I, I broke down some examples from uh, a major U.S. company, and they had like sixty billion in profits, and you know, I did some math on that, and it was kind of like roughly speaking, the average employee made like one hundred twenty thousand, and uh, but they brought a total of around six hundred thousand in value to the company. So it was like this: uh, this employee was was making about twenty percent of the value they brought to the company. Uh, but that 20%, uh, 120,000 is more than a lot of entrepreneurs make running their own business and getting 100% of the money. So there is definitely a place for employment and employment tracks and uh, entrepreneurship. But entrepreneurship is, is the easiest way in my mind, especially if you're struggling with disabilities, to focus on what you can do and not what you can't. Because when you focus on a job, uh, it is the employer that decides the value and what is valuable to that job. And when you have disabilities, uh, you may have three things that the employer thinks is great, but then your disabilities might have two things that the employer doesn't think is great. <laughs> you might need to be able to sit in a chair for more than an hour, say. <laughs> but you know, when you're when you're an entrepreneur, you can truly craft, you can truly craft what it is that you can do and craft a way to make money around that. And it's, it's kind of funny is I started writing a book called the Save, uh, Defeating Disability uh, Using Entrepreneurship. And I realized as I was writing that book, uh, and it's kind of based on my story, I realized that I needed to write a whole nother book that talked about value, that talked about skills. And all. So, so the value equation, the book that I wrote is actually a prequel to the book that I initially wanted to write that I still plan on writing in the future uh, called Defeating Disability. Uh, using entrepreneurship because entrepreneurship allows you to really hone in on what it is that you're able to do without somebody else telling you that you're not va as valuable because of your disability. You hit it right there on the head with the value. The whole thing was perfect because, and it's so easy when you listen to a podcast or when you see someone successful, you all, you, you start establishing your own confirmation bias that those are the only ways that success can become. And and then you start telling crappy stories like, yeah, that's not me. There's no way. I mean, there's there's a, wor a huge world where forever I told myself, you are not a podcaster. You are not like those people you hear on the radio. And I remember the first time that I played my introduction that I recorded way back in 2018. I hadn't released a podcast yet. And I just kind of played it through the car's Bluetooth. And it was a very eerie feeling hearing my voice on the radio. I was like, wow, this is about to happen. This voice is really about to ready to be played on people's car radios. And for five years, I had been hearing everybody else's voice and saying, there's no way I can be that guy. And then I eventually get the courage to go through it and find my value, which is this podcast. To wrap this interview up, because we've talked about a whole bunch of different things, and I loved every single one of them. I want you to go into a place where 
tap into all the wisdom that you've come through, come through all the shit that you've thought of and been through with your kids and whatever. Tell us that parting piece of advice that you want to share with us. That's going to be that piece of advice that we need to hear from your life that other dads maybe won't learn because they didn't go through your life in the way you've gone through it. Well, you know, lead from the heart. That's the best advice lead from the heart. Well, I think the biggest piece of advice is that the past doesn't define your future. Um, There's a whole nother concept that we never got into called, I I like to call it career prison, which is one of the the foundational motivational aspects of what I do as a franchise consultant is that I like to help break people out of career prison. Um, But the, the basic definition I came up with for career prison is that your, your past is defining your future. Everything you've done in the past is defining where you're going to go in the future. But this, this concept is so much more applicable than just in an employment concept. No matter, no matter where you are, what you've done, what's happened to this point can't be changed. Past, you can learn from it, uh, but you can't change it. And so when you let your past, something you can't change, define your future, uh, that's just, it's natural, but it's also the epitome of stupid. Your future has not been set. Everything that you can do with raising your kids, with the way that you, that you approach your kids, the way that you approach your life, all of everything in the future can be changed, is malleable. And if you're looking back at your life, how it's gone, how it's gone with your kids or, you know, things that haven't worked with your kids or haven't worked in your life, um, don't let that define the way that you decide to move into the future. Don't let your past define your future. Uh, the future is, uh, is not set and it can be, you know, whatever it is that you are able to make it. That is perfect because even if, like if you apply that to a dad listening to this that feels like a crappy dad, there is so much to that label that feels permanent. Even if you don't apply it to a crappy dad, maybe it's to, God, will my kids ever sleep because we have a newborn and you feel like this feeling is permanent? No, it's their kids will sleep at some point. This is just a season of life that you're going through. And that the future is always evolving. And something about our mind and our psyche applies a permanence to the future based on how we feel now and in the past. And it's the idea of breaking free from that and understanding, like you've talked about, the future is malleable. Your thoughts can shape how you see it. And if you want to think differently about the future, you need to start thinking differently about present. And then the whole thread starts going through. So where people get in touch with you and follow you more on social media. And if they want to learn more about your franchise stuff, or even just get in touch with your book. Yes. Uh, well, on LinkedIn and Facebook, I'm Joel Stewart MBA. You just should be able to just type that in and it shows up. Uh, you can feel free to email me if you want to joel.stewart at integritycommercial.biz. And uh, that's also my website, integritycommercial.biz. Uh, my book is called The Value Equation. Um, I've got a website, thevalueequation.org, and I, yeah, I am. I've got a whole bunch more book projects that I'm I'm working on. I actually have one that the rough draft is done on right now. I'm going to be calling it uh, "Franchising Unlocked: The Seven Secret Keys to Franchise Ownership." So that one's going to be more along my wheelhouse, my franchise niche uh, for people that want to get into franchising, and I'm hoping to have that out in a couple of weeks. But the the value equation is like where that's just like my heart just put into a book. 
you know, the, the fact that the idea of escaping career prison and keeping your life moving forward is something, it's an idea that's very personal to me through my own struggles. And it's the reason I got in the franchise consulting to begin with. Uh, but franchise consulting is just one way to keep your life moving forward. It's just one way to break out of career prison and, and move on to something you actually like doing. And so I really hope that, uh, you know, people just go and check out the value equation, the Kindle versions, you know, only like 10 bucks. Um, and, uh, and I really hope that it can, you know, cause some epiphanies for you, or if you know people, I mean, people that are, uh, going to be graduating high school or college or getting out of the military, anyone that's in a life transition, the, the book is really kind of perfect for to help them get clarity on what their next step needs to be. Well, that sounds perfect. And I'll include all those links for the socials, the link for the book in the show notes. So you don't have to worry about writing all that down. Just head over to militaryveterandad.com or it's also in the show notes for wherever podcast player that you're using. Joel, this episode has been awesome. And we didn't talk about it today, but you actually contracted COVID, which delayed this episode by two weeks. So I don't know if your performance was better today or just as good as it would have been before you caught COVID. But I'm super glad that you made it through COVID because this episode needed to happen. And I loved the value that we talked about today. Yeah, I am. A, I'm a COVID survivor. I need to get a T-shirt. So the, <laughs> I survived COVID. Probably, I haven't no, seen I more was... COVID survivor T-shirts. I feel I know, like really. that's a whole empire waiting to be tapped into. I survived COVID and all I got is another six to 12 months of ongoing symptoms. That should be like a T-shirt <laughs> at Target or something where you walk in. <laughs> Maybe no one wants to advertise they had it. I don't know. Well, Joel, thank you very much for giving us some of your time today. All right. Take care. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to today's show with Joel Stewart. This episode, like I said in the beginning, went into so many of the areas that we need to talk about more about on the podcast, and I loved that we got a chance to do it with Joel Stewart because his story and the richness of his story of rising through what he went through and coming on the other side and being who he is now and finding the value, as he talks about, in who he is now and what he can do and what he can offer and how he can help people find their real value through franchising and so much of with what his book does, The Value Equation, is just help many people find their value and worth and understanding the path that they can take. I love the advice about taking the different steps. That was something that was my big takeaway. I love the simplicity of what he was talking about there. And if you listen to the podcast, I'm a big frozen proponent. I did a, father, a Fatherhood Friday episode way back in the beginning of 2020. In that episode, I broke down why every veteran has a little Elsa inside them. And in Frozen 2, there is a line in that movie that relates to exactly what Joel said, where when the future is unknown, all you can do is take the next right step. And that's the core of what Joel's advice was talking about, is the accumulation of where you are is the accumulation of the steps you've taken. Tomorrow, the step that you take can be one in a completely new direction. There is no cement that says that your path has to be aligned, that the future really is completely open. There's been a couple men that I've been coaching lately and some advice that I've given them because they're in a situation where they're removed from their family, they're not a part of their kids' daily lives, their marriage is on the rocks, and they're completely isolated. And I told them the advice that like you've got an opportunity where every essentially step is possible. You have so much abundant of time. You can learn, listen, practice new skills, try new things. Now, while that situation that they're in really sucks, there is a lot of hope and opportunity to make a new direction without a lot of the barriers that if you're a dad like myself that is trying to do all these big, big different things, host podcasts, help dads do all these different things, 
raised three kids that are in the house. My wife's in the house, so my family is still together. There's a lot of times where I may be envious of someone that, like, man, or even envious of previous times in my life, like I've joked a couple times in the podcast, being bored in Okinawa and wasting all that time. Like, man, there was a, I get really enchanted with the amount of time I wasted just sitting there in my barracks room. I really could have been doing anything more productive than sitting there playing Xbox. So I want you to take away that, understand that the step you take tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, all of those days that you take can be a different step. If you feel like you've walked yourself into a corner, sometimes maybe you got to take a few steps back figure out how to get out of the corner and be like, oh, there's a door over here that I could have taken, but instead I kept walking towards this corner in the room. And running into the corner is not going to change your path. You got to pull back, figure out how did I get here, get your, essentially your coordinates on the situation, maybe a little bit like land nave where you got to pull back and figure out what geography landmarks are around you to figure out where you are on the map. All of that goes back to remembering you can take a fresh new step no matter what your situation. And Andy Storch gave us this advice as well as asking what is possible on that next step. Like so many times I talk to dads, they have a, but this can't happen because of this, because of this, because of this. Just for a moment, I want you to take all that crap off the list. What do you really want to do? Like figure out that question. If you didn't have all these excuses for why you can't do something, what would you really do with your time? Focus on that question, dive into it. If that question really resonated with you and you want to move forward, maybe, maybe you've been listening to the podcast and you're like, Ben keeps asking these really powerful questions, but I keep getting stuck on how to move for them. Head on over to bencloy.com. There is a free discovery call, 45 minute coaching call where I step into your life to essentially help you understand what's really going on. And the best way to explain it is imagine a forest that just where you're on top, all you see is green and the forest looks really healthy. But when you get down in the forest, you often can feel lost. And when you're looking above the forest, you can see the horizon. Maybe you can see a mountain that you need to head towards. But when you're in the forest, it's very difficult. And that's the perspective that a coach can provide. They can help see what's on the horizon. They can identify where you are within this forest and also help you get where you want to go. So if that sounds like something you want to do, again, head on over to bencloy.com join in and get book a free discovery call. Those discovery calls for the men I've had, I've followed up with them and they continue to say that those discovery calls are life-changing because they, for the first time in many years and months, maybe they feel hope for the first time that there is a better way to move forward. So guys, with that, I will wrap up, close out. If you have not left an iTunes review, those reviews are the lifeblood of our podcast on Apple. A huge portion of the listeners still exist on Apple for this podcast, and those reviews, I read every single one of them, and they mean the world to me. So if you have not done that, go ahead, head on over to iTunes, leave a review. Those reviews mean the world to me, as I said. So guys, with that, I'm signing off, heading into the week. I will talk to you guys again on Friday. Have an amazing week. Do something epic. Find ways to be a dad. And always, you are loved, appreciated. You just need to realize it yourself. Yeah.